Hi, it's Paul Camillos. Welcome to Series 5 of Shooting the Breeze. Join me and my co-host Jacinta Gavin as we talk to inspiring players, amazing coaches and the legends behind the scenes and at the grassroots of the game. This marks the start of our fourth year of covering women's hoops and women in hoops and throughout the series we welcome experts like Lyndon Moore from New Zealand and other special guests from across the world to get a global picture of the game. During this series we'll take a closer look at the grassroots and the passionate people at the community level. And of course, the 30th edition of the FIBA Women's Asia Cup will be heading to our shores for the first time to showcase the best women's hoops in our region. Hit that subscribe button and to show your support, rate and leave us a review on iTunes so we reach more listeners. You can't complain about the lack of resources because you should you're you should be grateful you're even here right this generation they don't think that way they think they deserve just as much as the men and so then you combine that with their social media savviness and you know just like the fact that they are getting more coverage than maybe players 10 years ago did and that's part of the reason everything's just totally gotten blown out of the water In our next Passport Pod for Series 5, we're joined by Amanda Kristovich, a sports business reporter with Front Office Sports, to discuss the record growth of the NCAA Women's March Madness. From viewership and media rights to the evolution of the women's game and the currency of our female players, particularly as Aussie representation increases in US college hoops. Increasing coverage by ESPN and international distribution has seen viewers contribute to the remarkable growth of women's college basketball, creating an undeniable value proposition for the women's game at both the college level in the NIL era, as well as the WNBA. A Columbia School of Journalism graduate, Amanda is one of the leading reporters on the business of women's basketball at Front Office Sports, shining a light on the financial transparency of the sport. In her own words, it became one of the biggest stories that no one could ignore. We're grateful to Amanda in sharing a fascinating insight into the NCAA Women's League, its value, the ripple effects to the pro leagues, and most importantly, a glimpse into the potential of women's hoops for professional athletes. Welcome to the next in our Passport podcast series. Joining me and Jacinta is Amanda Kristovich from Front Office Sports. Amanda is based in New York City and focuses on college sports, the NCAA and the business of women's sports. Today we're going to be talking the NCAA women's basketball, its phenomenal growth and engagement, particularly this year, and how things look for the future. Welcome to the show, Amanda. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I just want to start off, first of all, by asking what your current role involves, because there's not a lot of people who actually look at or focus on the business of women's sports. Yeah, it's it's funny you say that, because when I was hired at Front Office Sports in July of 2020, so the height of the pandemic, as you can probably imagine, there was a lot of sports business news in general about how everybody was losing money. And my main beat um, that I was hired to do is college sports. But one of the biggest business stories that organically came out of um, the college sports beat was the growth of the women's side from the TV ratings, the, the viewership, 
the ticket prices, um, when name, image, and likeness came into play, all of the female athletes who are profiting. So it was it was really like an organic storyline that sort of emerged. And at the same time, in the professional space in the U.S., women's basketball was growing, women's soccer was growing as well. So it, it it's funny because people, you know, always talk about, oh, we want to cover women's sports because it's equal, it's the right thing to do. But actually, it really just became you know, one of the biggest stories that no one could ignore, if that makes sense. Like, it wasn't like I set out to cover the business of women's sports. It just so happened to be the most interesting story. Yeah, I find it really interesting that you've gone down that route and and you've actually said that, because to me, the business of women's sports is fascinating because I see it as, in effect, I see women's sports as a startup. Right. And it's in that startup phase, which is why... And I'm sure you've seen it as well. There's all these arguments that you hear generally from guys saying, you know, oh, yeah, they can get paid more when they can get the revenue in. You know, if you're not getting the revenue in, you can't do this and you can't do that. To be blunt, I mean, if you're going to use that approach, well, no startup would ever start up. Exactly. Because they all depend on external investment to be able to get to that point where they become self-sustaining. I think women's sports is really now in that, in that phase where it's gone from startup, it's a concept to now it's a startup where people can see the value and want to invest. Absolutely. Um, and I think the key thing out of this is the stats for the NCAA women's basketball this year and last year as well, where, I mean, the numbers have just been phenomenal. Yeah, the women's championship game uh, this year actually usurped the ratings on ESPN for like, I would say most major sports. I mean, they had more than, you know, all the playoffs for hockey, any men's soccer game, like major league soccer game in the US, they got more viewers than Um, They got a lot more viewers than most of the major football, American football games, bowl games. And, you know, it was, I mean, like, it wasn't just a big number. It was 9.9 million, right? So that wasn't just a big number for women's sports. It was a big number compared to any product that ESPN has. So if you, you know, one of the experts that I spoke with, he said that, women's basketball and women's college basketball is now in the quote upper echelon of sports media rights competing with the NFL, the NBA, you know, they crushed major league baseball, for example, you know, so really we've gotten to the point where like the numbers speak for themselves. It's not just about like the fact that they're growing, but they're still like very much below the men's numbers. I mean, there was only like a 4 million, viewer difference between the men's and women's championships in college this year. Wow. Now I'm going to ask a question, but then I'm also going to hand over to Jacinta to talk a little bit about this, because I know this is sort of something that she's mentioned in quite a few conversations that we've had. Do you think that the way the men's game is being played is actually assisting the growth of the women's game? And I'll explain a little bit about that because the men's game seems to have I mean, I'll, I'll say devolved to you inbound the ball, get one one or two steps past the halfway line and jack it up for a three-point shot. There's no rebounding. There's very little defense. 
and then it's rinse and repeat from the other end. And I know this style of play is a real is a thing that Jacinta's talked about as well. So, do you think the difference the way the men's game now is being played to the women's game is actually helping the women's game along? And Jacinta, do you want to jump in and sort of kick in a little bit about your thought on that style of play? Uh, I mean, for me, essentially, I mean, I still am a big believer that the fundamentals of basketball between men and women's basketball is the same in terms of the same concepts, same team concepts. I suppose now we are seeing a bit of a division about how those concepts are applied. Um, But yeah, like Paul said, I've definitely seen a trend with men's basketball, uh, whether that be college and everyone compares everything to the NBA. It's just become more ISO, more offensive focused, less team concepts. And for me as a basketball purist, that's the stuff that I don't like watching. I want to see, you know, strong ball rotation, strong uh, team uh, execution in the half-court offense, strong team defense, those kinds of kinds of things. I mean, essentially being a team sport. Yeah, I didn't watch any of the men's March Madness because the parts I watched, I just didn't like. I just couldn't be bothered, whereas the women's, I mean, it probably helped that we had a few Aussies in March Madness. That was definitely an incentive to watch. Yes. But, yeah, I feel like the women's game, especially on the, the NCAA W stage is, is basketball at its purest form. But yeah, have you observed similar? Yeah, I, I've definitely heard that from people who are obviously, like yourself, very educated on the sport of basketball. I, I feel like with the exception of the lack of like dunking in women's basketball, I feel like the average fan may not really notice the difference. But I have heard that as you know, a way to market the women's game is like, hey, if you miss the sort of older days of the NBA, the men's game, and you don't like where it's evolved, well, the women's game is pretty much that. Um, So I've definitely heard that. The other thing that I will add, just I've heard that like the quality of play overall, regardless of what kind of style, just in women's college basketball has improved. So like I during the tournament at some point, I believe that I heard Diana Taurasi talking about, you know, oh, you know, I, I've seen some of the film of our old UConn games, you know, when they played in college. And she was like, we sucked. Like we were terrible compared to, you know, the product that is on the court now in, in women's college basketball. And that is attributed to like the increased investment that these schools have made in hiring coaches and, you know, increasing the facilities and the training opportunities. And then also for, you know, women and young girls like to have, you know, more years to play basketball and more opportunities to play basketball. Because, you know, in the US, like 1972 is the year that women became able to really play sports with Title IX. And before then, yes, women were playing sports, but there just weren't as many opportunities. So, I feel like I'm tying in a few different things here, but yeah. <laughs> but it's like the quality has improved because it's now been 50 years since then, right? Whereas like 15, 20 years ago, there just weren't the resources on the side of the women's game because it was even more of a startup, as you said earlier. So yeah, I, I think it's like regardless of the style of play, like the women's game has just become very high quality and everyone is noticing. And just touching, you mentioned resources. Yeah. I was really interested to know your opinion because I feel like this was a tipping point in a good way 
when we had NCAA March Madness a couple years ago and there was a lot of footage on social media platforms about the difference in resources provided to the male athletes and female athletes. So, for example, uh, the meals, the so-called gym that the females were provided where it was just a Kmart Pilates mat and some hand weights versus, you know, a full gym that the men had access to. I think that really put a big spotlight on women's college basketball as well and to help expose some of the inequalities. Did you see any trends in America with viewership and fan engagement when some of that content came out? Yeah, that was such an interesting moment for us, I feel like, because it wasn't necessarily news. There are structural inequities in all of sports, you know, despite Title IX, like like you said, literally, like even if all things being equal, women's sports in the U.S. are 50 years behind men's sports, just in terms of growth, resources, fans, et cetera, right? Um, so we knew, like we've all experienced, I experienced growing up inequities in sports, despite literally the law of the land saying that's not supposed to be a thing. And when all of a sudden those videos blew up on social media, all of the reporters who and the athletes who had been fighting this battle quietly for years, who knew that it was a thing, who thought no one wanted to write about it, you know, like no one was going to read a story about inequity because nobody cared, right? All of a sudden everyone cared. And like my editors were like, we want you to cover this basically at a very granular level every single day. And I covered it again. I covered the fallout last year and about like what the NCA had and hadn't changed. Um, spoiler alert, they made a lot of cosmetic changes to like, yeah, like, yeah, like the menu and um, the weight room concept was a weird COVID bubble situation. Normally weight rooms aren't provided in general. So that really wasn't like a thing, but the branding, the marketing, the signs, right? Like they improved a lot of those things, but the structural like revenue streams that the men's tournament has and the contracts, the way they're written are still geared towards the men. And they're working on changing that um, and fixing it and over the past couple of years, there has been a lot of improvement, but like by and large, a lot of these big structural issues that relate to the money coming in have not been changed. That's really interesting given the numbers you were talking about earlier yeah. in terms of viewership. Because to me, the NCAA, all things aside, they're a business, no different to any other business. They must have smart people sitting somewhere in a back room who can do forecasts on what they think the numbers are going to do based off prior trends and research that they're doing. I mean, like I'm looking at that number of 9.9 million viewers that you mentioned earlier. Now, was that just within the, the US or was that across all ESPN platforms globally? Do you know? As far as I know, it was all ESPN platforms. Um, you know, I, I don't know what specifically like their distribution looks like abroad, but it was based because the other thing was, is that it's not just one ESPN network so that the women's championship was broadcast on like four different ESPN networks just within the United States alone. Um, so they add all of that up and then you would add on, theoretically, you would add on international distribution of the networks, particularly with streaming, so long as it's like legal streaming, right? Uh, because they can't count illegal streaming or like those sorts of things. But yeah, I mean, to your point, 
the reason that like this, the media contract hasn't been changed and the sponsorship contract hasn't been changed is is literally just like when those contracts expire. So people have said those contracts are so bad that the NCAA should have tried to get out of them over the past year. I don't necessarily disagree with that. But I think the real test is going to be what they do over the summer for renegotiating the media contract, which, as you said, significantly undervalues this product. They've retained um, a consulting firm to help them figure out the value, what they should be asking for, how they want to package it, because there's this debate about whether they package it with all the other college sports besides football or whether they separate it and sell it by itself. They claim they're working on that. The NCAA president has also only been in an office for like six weeks. So when I spoke with him, he clearly like had some catching up to do, which is you know, no, I'm not no knock on him. I mean, the guy's only hasn't even been on the job for two months. But, um, you know, it's really going to be a test over the summer to see how much they invest in trying to negotiate these rights, because the last time clearly they didn't do their due diligence. They they just didn't. So, yeah, it's because I mean, you know, to me, it's like there's a point where the NCAA really has to split off women's not just women's basketball but women's sports altogether because if you're bundling it one of the other issues is i don't think you're extracting the full value of the product that you've got but also i think there's a whole lot of other things that can come out of splitting it out because you then start to build the personalities you've right. got more room to build the personality so like as jacinta said you know there were a lot of australians playing in NCAA colleges this year that made it into March Madness. Um, obviously, that raised the level of interest here for us as well. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, if you disengage the women's sports from the men's sports and you give that sort of room for people to be able to effectively get the airtime for themselves, that means there's more potential for uh, NIL deals for them. Mm-hmm. Um I think actually just recently somewhere on social media, there was a a statement from Jazz Shelley about being open for NIL deals, not only within the US, but internationally as well. So there's all of that that potential that gets unlocked. And I'm also going to throw back to you, Jacinta, now to talk about, you know, the players that we've got from Australia over in college who've got the potential to, to get that extra airtime for themselves. But also the ones that are potential that are just starting to go over to college as well. Yeah, I mean we had Georgia Amore for Virginia um, for yeah Virginia Tech getting up there and obviously playing great basketball. Jazz Shelley is very well known and loved in Nebraska, even though they didn't make March Madness. Uh, like to Izzy Palmer, and I was going to say Kelsey Reese for Utah, who made it to I think Sweet Sixteen, but Kelsey's now entered the transfer portal, but still. And to me, it seems like I, I think another trend that I've also perhaps seen uh, in the last couple of years with the increase of exposure and ratings and things like that is also, with lack of better phrasing, probably some a lot more marketable players in the women's in a sense of your Caitlin Clarks, your Angel Reese's, whether you know you love her or hate her, their personalities because they play such great basketball. They're showing so many. Uh, different types of skills off the court that are beyond their years. You know, Caitlin Clark doing a, f- a free NIL with a food bank and things like that. So that I, for me, like I feel like there's a strong correlation as well between these players who are being able to showcase their extraordinary basketball talents and now take that 
off-court into communities and the NIL kind of deals. And I think that's also going to attract more viewership because now that they're becoming like characters in a in a show, I mean, how many people do you know are fans of LeBron but not necessarily the teams that LeBron plays for? They'll follow him team to team, championship to championship because of who he is as a person, who he is as a player versus what team he's for. So do you feel the with now the NIL deals coming out and um, like you said before, the quality of women's college basketball just going through the roof. That also, that combination of the two is going to help expose the sport even more. Absolutely. I, I mean, NIL is undoubtedly a win for women's athletes. Like we've been saying that since before NIL began and like people didn't believe me. People didn't believe like all the experts I was talking to, like marketing experts who were saying that, you know, female athletes had really been glossed over um, in particularly sponsorship and endorsement deals. And I think that the interesting thing about the marketability um, aspect is that, and this is something an expert told me like before the NIL era like officially started, was that this not only are female athletes uniquely positioned to capitalize on marketing deals because throughout their lives they've had to learn how to market themselves, whereas male athletes who are inherently in sports that have the infrastructure and like built in popularity, they don't need to learn how to do that because it's already just out there for them, right? They don't need to find the fans. The female athletes have had to tell their own stories. They don't get as much coverage. They don't, you know, they're in younger leagues, that sort of thing. So that, and then just combined with like this generation in general, the fact that they have grown up with Um, social media, they like no one needs to teach Angel Reese and Caitlin Clark how to use social media. They grew up in, you know, a generation where that is second nature to them and they're used to it. So and then the third aspect is like their generation doesn't believe that women's sports are second class, right? Like they will not accept that and they have not accepted that in a way that athletes in the past like even when I was growing up in the United States, like was conditioned to believe like, oh, you should be lucky that you even get the chance. You can't complain about the lack of resources because you should you're you should be grateful you're even here. Right. This generation, they don't think that way. They think they deserve just as much as the men. And so then you combine that with their social media savviness and, you know, just like the fact that they are getting more coverage than maybe players 10 years ago did. And that's part of the reason everything's just totally gotten blown out of the water. So do you think all of these changes will actually have a knock-on effect or an impact on the WNBA and, you know, its marketability? And do you think it's going to be a positive effect? Or do you think it's going to have some sort of really weird effect in, you know, the way college sports and WNBA are seen? Because I know, you know, I'm just going to throw over to the NFL. The NFL is, I mean, nowadays it's it's seen as the no fun league and, you know, college football is seen as the more fun game to watch. Yeah, I I think the answer to that is that, the, this is going to help the WNBA, but maybe not immediately. So if you look at like historically, there was a similar phenomenon between like men's college basketball and the NBA, where like men's college basketball 
got sort of, you know, it, it, it got elevated to a higher level of popularity before the NBA did, and it helped the NBA grow. So I think we're going to see a similar phenomenon in college women's basketball, where people, you know, sort of become fans of these players while they're in college, and then sort of they learn the WNBA that way, right? Like they follow the players to the WNBA. But there's another phenomenon that's like maybe a little less positive, which is that like the WNBA doesn't look very good when you have players deciding to stay in college for an extra year because they can make more money through NIL than they can through their WNBA contracts. And they can fly on charter planes on their college teams and they have access to, you know, state of the art facilities in a way that a lot of the WNBA teams and players do not. So I'm hoping that it's going to really pressure the WNBA to increase their resources. They are going to be negotiating a new media contract as well. And the commissioner, she's talked about, you know, how they can't do the charter flights for the regular season. They can't do this. They can't do that until they get more money coming in. Well, this is going to be her opportunity to renegotiate a contract so that the WNBA doesn't look like, frankly, a less like swanky experience. You know, like the UCLA women's basketball coach was talking about the reality of, you know, one of her players decided to stay at UCLA because she gets like, you know, all the facilities at UCLA, the charter flights, the NIL deals. It's a better lifestyle than the WNBA. And so hopefully this will pressure the pro league to really, really, really double down on on their investment and like the quality of life for the players. Yeah, it's an interesting point. And I think there's one other thing that comes along with the the WNBA Mm -hmm. and players staying in college. You've only got 12 teams in the WNBA. You have this huge pool of players that are coming out of college to go into the draft, plus you have international players that are coming into the draft. Right. So you've got way more talent available in the draft than you do available slots in the rosters, which leads to situations like you had last year where teams were cutting first-round draft picks. Um, They were cutting them, and basically it almost seemed like what they were doing was they were filling their roster slots with the best available talent at that point in time until the people they really wanted became available from overseas commitments to be able to join the roster, and then, and then they were just cutting them. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. There are not enough teams in the WNBA to um, support the quality that is coming out of college. And, of course, that's, that's the case on the men's side, too, um, to an extent, but it's a lot you know, less of, of a phenomenon because also it's like the NBA has the G League, Right. So if you're a player who doesn't quite make the roster, you can sign a two way contract. You can, you know, sort of kick around in the G League if you don't want to go overseas. And but yeah, I mean, there are just so few spots in the WNBA. And that was even a discussion this year about like the athletes who are considering declaring for the draft this year. It was like, okay, well, is this an up year or a down year for roster spots, right? Is this an up year or a down year for my position, for my skill set? Am I going to be coveted or are there, you know, 10 other top competitors? And like I said, to an extent, that's the case in every sport, but it is so as the parity in women's college basketball increases, like the WNBA can't keep up as far as roster spots and teams. And they're going to expand. They've announced that. 
but it's still like not enough. Okay. We're getting into another area which kind of really interests me. And I know we, we're kind of running short on time, but this no is something problem. I do want to kind of drive into a little bit here. There's 12 teams and there is going to be expansion. I got a feeling, look, this is a personal thing. I've got a feeling that part of the problem for expansion for the league may well do with the ownership models that exist. Okay. The majority of ownership models for for professional sports here in Australia and in the US is you got, I mean, it's a generalization, but you got rich guys who want to go own a sports team. Yeah. Right. So mm-hmm. they go and dump a, a truckload of cash and there's only so many of them around. <laughs> Let's be honest. Right. Now, if I look across to Europe, they have a really different ownership model. The ownership model is based around clubs. So, you know, you've got clubs that not just do men's and women's basketball, they also do soccer, they do a whole lot of other sports. So fans are fans of the club right? and support the sports rather than, you know, somebody with really deep pockets because the other reality that goes with that is somebody with really deep pockets who goes and spends a whole lot of money on uh, buying a team has got to be really wealthy by getting a profit. And if the profit return isn't there for them in the time frame that they're looking for, they kind of go, do I really want to stay involved with this sport, which ends up becoming an inhibitor to growth and expansion in other markets. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, you know, it's so interesting to me to just look at the concept of like the European model. So like, for example, I lived in Prague for um, like four months and they have FC Sparta Praha, which is, you know, their Prague soccer team, but Sparta Praha is also the hockey team. And that's like unheard of in the United States. I had never like, you know, that was like not a thing. And then the, you know, the other weird thing about the clubs is there's the youth aspect to it that we don't have in the United States where you become a professional when you're like eight years old and you go up through the club. Whereas here we have college sports, which side note is why I'm curious to see if women's college sports can gain a foothold in Europe because, you know, in Europe, the concept of the NCAA is such an American thing. I feel like Mm. universities in other parts of the world, like do not have that component of competitive sports. It's just like you're, you're either at the university or you're in the club, right? Or, or if you're somehow doing both, which I feel like most people don't do, they're not tied to each other. You don't have like, oh, I went to Michigan and my I'm a fan of the Michigan football team, right? Yeah. So I think there's that too, um, which there's like this disconnect maybe is what we're trying to get at with the ownership, the relationship between the players and the teams, the longevity. Because in the US, like you've got, you know, I went to Georgetown for undergraduate in Washington, D.C., and we had soccer players who, you know, would come from clubs overseas or they would go to clubs overseas to finish out like their youth years because it just made more sense if they wanted to play, you know, high quality soccer and not have to play in the United States where like the quality is not as high as it could be. Um, So I wonder if there's that like relational disconnect as well where they're not investing in players long term from a young age 
they're just like picking people off in the draft and then hoping that like immediately they all click and that's not necessarily the case. I don't know if that it's, but it's an interesting concept, just the ownership models. But I will say like, those are the ownership models in all of us sports. So yeah, it works for some sports. I don't know. (laughs) Well, it's, it's kind of weird because now you've opened up this whole other rabbit hole because Australia is really strange in that respect. We actually have, in the WNBL, we have a community-owned team, the Townsville Fire, who've just won the, the WNBL championship. The rest of the teams are predominantly owned by one person or a consortium. Um, they've just started, a few of the universities have just started trying to set up a inter-university league. So it's kind of like, oh, you'd call it the NCAA light. Ah, interesting. But... We also have, you know, other sports where they've got that whole process of, you know, you develop talent from a very young age. So that's in, you know, rugby league and rugby union right. and, and AFL. So we've actually got this amazing melting pot of all the different styles of ownership models. And we've got it in a country with a population of, you know, let's be generous and say 28 million, which also makes it really hard from just a straight numbers perspective to make them all viable because it's a small, it's a small population base to kind of build off. So there's all sorts of amazing things going on here in terms of ownership models and experimenting with them and seeing what works and what doesn't. It it was interesting when you you just sort of mentioning all of that. And uh, so I kind of think in Australia, because we've got, you know, an interest in soccer, we've got an interest in, you know, football and, and all these other sports, we sort of, oh, for soccer, the, the ownership model is the, it's what's used in Europe. For right. American sports, the ownership model is what's used in America. And in all our local and homegrown sports, we've got that ownership model. So from a business standpoint, it's, it's interesting, but also strange in its own right. Well, I'd be curious to hear, you know, and it it sounds like, you know, the University League obviously is a little bit more fledgling, for example, than some of like the soccer youth academies. But like, I'd be curious to know in three to five years, which, you know, model in one, you know, you have all these different models in one country, like which works. Because in the United States, we just we have like the NCAA is everything. And that's why they have so much control over the players and, you know, just like the human rights of like college athletes. I won't get into that today, but they just have such a chokehold because like we have such a strange system here that was birthed by Title IX where because Title IX is tied to education. There's no there's only a law about equity and sports opportunities for educational purposes like pro leagues don't have to follow that. So that's why the women's sports like grew within schools here, but that's just like not the case in other places. So I'd be curious to hear like in a few years, like which ones in Australia have become the most popular. As we kind of wrap this one up, what do you think is going to happen in the journalism and media space, particularly around women's sports, given the increase in interest and the fact that there's arguably a lot more money starting to flow into women's sports? I think that the coverage is going to exponentially increase. I've seen it at my own media company where, you know, I don't have to beg them to let me write about women's sports. 
in fact, I'm encouraged to do so. And we just had a conversation the other day about how we need to get more women's sports. You know, we, we want to do more women's pro sports features because I do a ton of the college stuff, right? But we want, you know, talking like freelancers and, and that sort of thing. So I just see it in my own, like, we work remotely, but my own office, quote unquote, we'll say, where there's an appetite for increased coverage. Um, so I think that that's going to be a case, the case at pretty much any sports outlet that knows what they're doing. But then the other thing I'll say is like, clearly there are a lot of startups focused on covering women's sports. So I wonder, you know, which model is really going to gain the, I guess, the trust of the average fan are people who are just general sports. Maybe there are a few different options. The people who are general sports fans who discover women's sports will maybe read the quote unquote more legacy publications that have sort of already were established and waded into the women's sports space. And then maybe like the, the sort of diehard women's basketball fans, for example, who have been ar- like around since the beginning when there was no coverage are going to be following these startups like just women's sports, for example, or the next are two of like the, the ones that I think of that cover women's college basketball, the WNBA. So I'm curious to see, but I think that um, I can't put a number on it, but I've certainly seen an appetite for like people asking me to write about it. People reading my stories, liking my tweets about women's sports more than ever in my career or in my lifetime, honestly. We certainly see an appetite for it here as well, because a lot of our big uh, mainstream media outlets still work with the argument of, well, people don't like it, so we won't write about it. But on the other the other side is if you don't write about it and expose it, then people don't have an opportunity to like it. Um, exactly. I think it was the same thing with the NCAA women's recent March Madness is that we were actually able to watch it on ESPN. So yeah. more and more over the last three years, we've had more access to games in Australia on ESPN. Now having ESPN though in Australia can be... A privilege. Same with the other sporting streaming service that um, supplies NCAA. But the fact that there were back-to-back women's games on, and not just the games that were UConn, not just the games that had, you know, particular names and particular players, uh, was. I mean, if you put it on, we'll watch it. We want to watch it. There's yeah. people there that want to watch it, and there's people there that are also just walking basketball fans that will see, oh, some basketball's on. Why don't I just put it on and then discover a whole new league and a whole new pool of talent. And so I think in terms of media, certainly lots of interest for a lot more women's basketball content. And we over here are relying a lot on the alternative media streams like podcasts, like people who have their own startup kind of blogs because it's all fan-based. It's all written by people who are fans of basketball first and who love to get into the nitty-gritty of players and teams and clubs versus the mainstream media where we have friends who work for mainstream media and major newspaper publications who say, I want to write about this. I'll take it to the bosses and they will tell me to go and cover something else. So it's, we're still facing that barrier of, well, no one wants to watch it. So we're not going to write about it when it should be the other way around. Right. Well, and the one thing I'll add is that here, I've seen that a lot of those people who started those 
sort of more niche publications, blogs, podcasts, you know, really sort of like in-depth coverage because the mainstream outlets weren't covering it. Now those people are being hired by the mainstream outlets to cover women's sports for them or to freelance out for them. So I wouldn't be surprised if that happens hopefully soon too, when the mainstream outlets realize that, oh my gosh, there's this huge untapped market and all of our writers don't know anything about it. So we need to hire somebody who does. And the only people who do are the ones who have been grinding it out on these alternative publications. Yeah. Then I I get a bit worried in a sense where it would be great if they could get into a major mainstream publication, but then how much creative control are they able to exercise? You know, you can find a story. You've, you've covered the sport for so long. You've developed relationships with players and you can see a great story. Um, but then for the the big bosses just to go, no, no, just do results, just do match uh, game day reviews, don't worry about the rest of the stuff. So it's um, still a little bit in the grey for me, I think, in that sense. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of that, and particularly here in Australia where we've got so much media ownership concentrated in basically in two groups. So we are, we've got the Murdoch Press and we've got another group, which is the Nine Group. And between the two of them, they, that's 90% of our, of our media ownership across the board. You end up having, it's difficult because their focus is on the big sports, the AFL, the NRL, and to a lesser extent, rugby and cricket, because that's where all the money is. And because they're anchored in a lot of cases with TV... There's the advertising revenue, which drives a lot of the decision-making about what sports they're going to cover. That makes it hard. And, and like Jacinta said, the, the thing is that they may well go to niche publications and podcasts, but how much real potential they're going to give uh, those outlets if they are freelancing or hired to actually do the quality content they've been doing so far? Yeah, and that's going to be the question, you know, case-by-case case basis, right? So... I, I hope for the best, like I, you know, to shout out front office sports, they've, you know, opened up a, a huge opportunity for me to do this sort of coverage, to cover the business side of the industry and to have more words to do so than a lot of other reporters. So I'm very grateful to be in the spot that I'm in. Okay, Amanda, thanks so much for your time and joining us on the show. Now, obviously, the big question is, are you ever planning on coming down to Australia to report on what's happening down here? (laughs) I would love to. I will put in a request, you know, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, I just put in a request to cover the South Carolina Notre Dame women's basketball game in Paris. I am a very amateur French speaker. So I said, (laughs) I'm the college sports reporter who speaks French. Please send me. Um, I will go for the weekend and cover the game for you. So we'll see. But well, I'm I'm definitely going to pitch it. I'd love to. I would absolutely well, love to. Well, we've got the the Asia Cup coming up for women's being held in Sydney in just a couple of months. For it's a week. I think it's a week. And, is it a week and a half, Jacinta? Uh I feel like it's just. Yeah, I think you're right. It's. I think it's a week and a half or so, um, or maybe just a tad bit less. But basically, the end of June, start of July. Um, I was just looking at the tickets last night and the finals. Games are held on the first weekend in July, so um, I don't know. I'll send I'll send a couple emails when we get off the uh, the conversation, but I would love to. Yeah, and we might even be able to get get some stuff in on business of Australian women's sports as well. 
And it, yeah. it will be winter. Just be aware, it will be winter at that time. And I did read online that you also don't like winter. Uh, I also despise winter. And I'm sure oh, your yeah, winter's no, over no, there. I live in New York, so, yeah. Uh, listen, your winter's uh, much worse than ours. <laughs> yeah, look, we've done New York in February. Brutal. Brutal. Yeah. Not as cool as it used to be, though, fortunately or unfortunately, because of climate change. Like, this was, like, our warmest winter on record. But, yeah, it's it's rough. Yeah, our, our winters are a lot milder. So, again, Amanda, thanks so much for joining us. And we look forward to speaking to you soon. Yeah, thank you so much. Shooting the Breeze can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with all your friends.